Welcome to the EAU podcast. In this edition, we have Miss Kay Thomas, a consultant urologist and member of the EAU guidelines panel for urolithiasis, discussing metabolic factors affecting stone patients. What is the basic evaluation that should be done for all stone formers? This is a really important question. Patients often ask us after they've had their first stone, why did I get this and how can I avoid another one? The basic evaluation that should be done for all stone formers is firstly a urine, a dipstick of a spot urine sample to look at red cells, white cells, nitrites and urine pH. Urine microscopy and culture should be performed where appropriate. When we look at blood tests in the elective setting, then a serum uric acid and a serum ionized calcium should be sent. Stone analysis should be performed in all first time stone formers using a valid procedure such as infrared spectroscopy or X-ray diffraction. Repeat stone analysis should be performed in patients presenting with recurrent stones despite drug therapy, early recurrence after complete stone clearance, late recurrence after a long stone-free period because stone composition may change. Who needs more specific evaluation and what investigations would you recommend? The risk of stone formers is of particular interest because it defines the probability of recurrence or regrowth. The risk of chronic kidney disease and is imperative for pharmacological treatment. About 50% of recurrent stone formers have just one lifetime recurrence. A recent review of first-time stone formers calculated a recurrence rate of 26% within five years. Highly recurrent disease is observed in slightly more than 10% of patients. There are many factors that decide whether a patient is high or low risk. For example, general factors such as early onset of urolithiasis, a family history of stone formation, recurrent stone formation, frequent stone formation, particular types of stones such as brushite, uric acid and infection stones are also associated with high risk of recurrence. There are also diseases that are associated with stone formation, such as hyperparathyroidism, metabolic syndrome, nephrocalcinosis, polycystic kidney disease, various gastrointestinal diseases, including bypass and Crohn's disease, increased levels of vitamin D, sarcoidosis, and lastly, spinal cord injury, and neurogenic bladder. Less common causes of stone disease are those which are genetically determined. To give a few examples such as cystinuria, primary hyperoxaluria and renal tubular acidosis. There are quite a number of drugs that are involved with stone formation and also anatomical abnormalities. For example, Calocele diverticulum, medullary sponge kidney, 
and horseshoe kidney. It's increasingly recognised that environmental and professional factors can give lead to a high risk of stone formation, particularly when people work in high ambient temperatures or live in countries with high ambient temperatures. We are much more aware of the risk of stone patients developing chronic kidney disease and therefore we should pay particular attention to those causes, for example, cysteine stones, stones in a single kidney, secondary hyperoxaluria, and even more high risk, primary hyperoxaluria. So we have uh, discussed some of the causes for patients being in a high risk group for stone formation and therefore requiring additional tests to those we've already discussed in the basic evaluation. These patients should require a collection of two consecutive 24-hour urine samples. If this is not possible, particularly, for example, in non-toilet trained children, then a spot urine sample can be sent. These are then linked to excretion rates of creatinine, but are limited in their use because the results may vary with collection time, patient sex, body weight and age. The parameters we are measuring in the urine are the pH, the specific weight, creatinine, calcium, oxalate, uric acid, citrate, magnesium, inorganic phosphate, ammonium and cysteine. So broadly, we are looking for promoters of stone formation and inhibitors. Often we are asked when and how should we do these tests in patients. For the initial workup, the patient should stay on their normal diet under normal daily conditions and ideally be stone free for at least 20 days. Follow up studies are necessary in patients taking medication for recurrence prevention. What advice would you recommend for a patient with a low risk of recurrence? For these patients with a low risk of recurrence, there are general considerations to prevent the recurrence. These broadly fall into three categories. The main focus of them is the normalisation of dietary habits and lifestyle risks. The three categories are fluid intake, so drinking enough to have a diuresis of two to two and a half litres per day. Nutritional advice, which really is around ensuring a balanced diet, which is rich in vegetables and fibre, has a normal calcium content, is, has a limited sodium content and also a limited animal protein. Lastly, we give lifestyle advice to normalise the general risk factors. For example, maintaining a normal body mass index or BMI, adequate physical activity and avoiding excessive fluid loss. There should be a caution that protein requirements are age dependent and therefore in childhood, these should be handled carefully. What advice would you recommend for a patient with a high risk of recurrence? So for these patients, pharmacological treatment is often necessary in addition to the general measures we've just discussed. Those general measures 
our fluid intake, dietary intake and lifestyle measures. Clearly, the ideal drug would halt stone formation, have no side effects and be easy to administer. Unfortunately, this is often not the case. There are many different drugs that can be used and there is a table in the guidelines highlighting the most important characteristics of each of them. An example that I would give is for calcium oxalate, where we would recommend prescribing a thiazide and alkaline citrate in cases of hypercalciuria. We would advise oxalate restriction if hyperoxaluria was present. We would offer calcium supplement in enteric hyperoxaluria, along with advising reduced dietary fat and oxalate. There are more suggestions for treatments of calcium oxalate, but these just give you an idea of those that could be used. Regardless of what intervention is used, it is important to follow up the patient with a 24-hour urine measurement eight or 12 weeks after starting pharmacological prevention of stone recurrence. This enables the drug dosage to be adjusted if the urinary factors have not normalised. Once, however, these parameters have been normalised, it's sufficient to perform the 24-hour urine evaluation only every 12 months. I hope this has been a helpful overview of the metabolic factors of stone disease. As always, the timing of these investigations and the indications for medication rely on so many factors, such as type of stone, underlying cause, frequency of stone formation, whether they are on medical intervention, and whether they are requiring surgical intervention. All of these different patient factors must be taken into consideration when deciding how to evaluate your patient and what treatments to offer them. This has been a general overview. More specific information and detail is, of course, available in the EAU Eurolithiasis guidelines. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining Kay Thomas for this episode of EAU Podcasts on metabolic factors affecting stone patients. For further information on the EAU guidelines on urolithiasis, please visit our website www.euroweg.org forward slash guidelines. Further podcasts will be posted regularly on EAU guidelines topics. For more EAU podcasts, please go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe to our EAU podcast channel for regular updates.